do encourage you, if you've not yet signed up for a group, it's a great way of not only getting to know people, but growing together in God. And um, as, as the guys have been saying today, just beginning to, to put into practice our faith on a day-to-day basis in the supporting environment of, of having others around you. So please do. Two of our groups are already full, uh, so you won't be able to sign up to them uh, today. But all the rest are, are there, and uh, you can get involved in those. Uh, that's great. So it's New Year still, just about. How are you doing? Doing all right so far? A couple of weeks in? Yeah? Doing okay? Who thinks they're doing really well so far this new year? Okay, who thinks they're doing middling? Who thinks they're doing quite poorly so far? All the chocolates are eaten, resolutions all broken. My question is, how, how do you know how well you're doing? If you, if you were to look back on last year and, and answer the question, how successful were you last year, how would you, how would you know? Because we measure how well we've done and, and how well we're doing in all sorts of different ways. And I'm not sure we use the right measurement quite often. I'm not sure we look at the right things and, and test the right things and check in the right way. And so I want us to look at a Bible story today, which is in Luke's Gospel, it's the story of John the Baptist, and I help think that we can see some signs of success in this story. We can see different ways that we can look and answer the question, how am I doing, and, and am I doing okay? And it's important because as we look forward, we want to know what to measure. I was having a chat to somebody this week, and they're moving house, and they were describing how um, it, it's quite traumatic because they're moving away from Tunbridge Wells, and of course, everyone wants to be in Tunbridge Wells, don't they? But... Um, they're moving away, and, and they were saying that in their house, they, they suddenly kind of got a, a pang of emotion as they looked in their child's bedroom, and they noticed that uh, what they'd done over the years was mark on the door as their child was growing up. Uh, and they got this thought, what do we do? We, do we take the door with us? Do we take a photo and get it done life-size and pin it up in the new house so we can carry on? But there's this thought of measuring, and I remember as a kid going to some clothes shops, um, and some of them had sort of age guides on a height chart. Uh, and kind of not only a height chart, which you could measure yourself, which was great fun in the shop, but kind of an age guide of how, how big you should be at that point and what size clothes in that shop would match you. And it was great kind of trying to stretch and see if you could get to be the next age because that felt like a great achievement. We measure all sorts of things all of the time. And we're going to read the story of John the Baptist and uh, a quick summary of the story. John starts off uh, alone, starts preaching, crowds come. They, they're enthralled by his preaching. Eventually, Jesus comes and himself gets baptized. And that's it in a nutshell. And that's what we're going to dive into today. And you can think, well, how, how can we see success in this story? But I'm going to read it through. I haven't got all the verses on the screen because there's quite a, a few. But if you've got a Bible, do turn to Luke chapter 3. Um, if you've got your phone, you might want to look, read it on there or your uh, iPad or something, follow it on there. If you've, by the way, if you're, if you're not uh, downloaded, uh, if you have a, a smartphone but you've not yet downloaded something like version, it's a great way of, of keeping up to date with your Bible reading. Bible reading plans are a brilliant thing to do through the year. You can, there's, so, there's hundreds on there. And you can choose to go through the New Testament in a year or the whole thing in a year or, or various themes. You can do short ones. There's like a week's program. There's a month's program. But a simple app called Uversion. It's a great way of 
getting into God's Word. There's all sorts of different Bible versions on there too. Um, it's a little plug there. It's free of charge. We're not on commission. I just want to encourage you to get into the Bible. But if you had that, you could now be following in Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of uh, Ituria, should have practiced this before reading it, and Trachontis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley will be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So, so far we've got important people, John, John's message. This is unpacking a little bit of what John actually said. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. That's a great welcome, isn't it? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's looking back at their lineage. They were very proud that they were proper Jews and fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. Do not say that, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? said the crowd. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money, extort money or don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and all wondered in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. With many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he'd done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. That's the whole thing. A long reading. Uh, But we're going to pick out a few points from that I think are quite important when we're looking at uh, measuring success. That story opens with these two verses in Luke chapter 3. And I've read the names already, struggled over one of them, but there's There's the list of names, and it starts in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And what Luke's doing for us at this point, he's painting a picture of all the governmental, all the political, all the religious leaders that had sway in this region at this time. He starts at the very top. 
at the very top, we have the emperor himself. The one who had all authority. He was in charge. Sovereign over all. Tiberius Caesar. Even the name sounds imperious, doesn't it? If you have wanted a, your child to be very, very confident, you might call them Tiberius. And Caesar's not a bad middle name either. Very important sounding name. He's absolutely in charge. What he says goes. Fall out with him, you're in real trouble. Uh, beneath him, for this particular region, is Pontius Pilate, a political appointee. Chosen to be governor of Judea. Not a much wanted job, necessarily. But Pontius Pilate is doing this with some verve and vigor and is quite brutal uh, in, in kind of putting into force the Roman rule on the Roman regime. And then we get something quite interesting, which is, again, another nod to politics, but also a nod to religion at this point. And, and in the top of this little map I've got on the screen, you can see these four areas, Iturea, Abilene, uh, Traconitis, and Galilee, and there's four of them, hence the word tetrarch, which is this ruler of a fourth, or ruler of a court, ruler of a part, which is why we've got Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, Philip, the tetrarch of Iturea and Trachontis. He gets two, diagonally opposite. I don't know why he gets those two, but there we go. And, his, and uh, Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. These, these three guys are divided up, have had divided up these four areas, and they're ruling each of them. And they're in charge of those. And this is a nod, a throwback to a, a past political division uh, along religious lines to try and keep the Jewish people happy, to try and rule them, to try and control them, to try and bring some order and some discipline to this part of the world. So it's part Roman, part Jewish in Herod's case, but not really. And then Luke lists for us, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, now, you can only have one high priest, but one is the father-in-law and one's the son, and they're, they've, they, they're kind of, one is ruling and one's kind of still important and still in position and still in power, really, behind the scenes. So you've got this whole mixture, and that's obviously religious authority, the high priesthood. You've got the whole mixture of Caesar right at the top, Pontius Pilate next, the Herod and, and, and his family around, and then the, the high priest and his relative. And this whole mixture of governmental, political, religious authority. I don't remember the story of God appearing to Elijah, and Elijah goes to the mouth of a cave when he hears the whisper of God, because he's, he's seen the earthquake, and he's seen the fire, and he's seen the storm, and the Bible just says, and God was not in those. Remember that story? Well, this is a bit like this. If you're looking for success in in power and position, we've got all sorts of power and position you could possibly want. And God isn't in any of it. He's not in, in any of it. He's not interested in any of it because the Word of God says this, and the Word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. When it comes to measuring success, I want to say that the world often measures in a different way from how God does. You couldn't get any more successful than to be Tiberius Caesar at this point. In terms, of politi- in terms of authority and rule and governorship, you couldn't get any better. In terms of political power, for an area, you couldn't get much better than Pontius Pilate. Though because he's under Tiberius Caesar, he's always fearing for his life and fearing for his, his rule. And so on down. But God's word comes to John, son 
of Zechariah. Notice that he's not even John the Baptist at this point. He's just John. And his dad's called Zechariah. That's it. And the word of God comes to him. There's a few things I want us just to notice from this very first uh, and important point. God is searching for the obedient and the responsive, not for the impressive and powerful. He's searching for those who will respond. And God has always, always done this. If you incline your heart to him, he's, he's looking to lead us. He's looking to direct us. He's looking to work with us. He's not after position and power and influence. He wants people whose hearts are open to him. Secondly, God knows your location when no one else does. Look where John is. He's, he's already gone out to the wilderness. He's gone there first, and then God's word comes to him. You notice? He's not told to go to the wilderness by God, as far as we know from this passage at least, but he's gone out to the wilderness, and it's there in isolation, where no one knows him, where no one knows who he is, where no one's impressed with him, or he's got no power or position or authority or dominion, that God turns up and speaks to him. And it doesn't matter if no one seems to know where you are. God does. That leads me to my last point on this, which is to say this, don't despise the wilderness. And this is hard. It's really tough, because sometimes in our lives we come into a place where we feel like we're in a bit of a wilderness. It feels like nobody's noticing. It feels like nobody knows what's going on, where we're all on our own. It feels like we, we had so much promise. Remember, John was the son of Zechariah. Zechariah, the one to whom the angel came. There's a lot riding on his life. And it could seem as though all of that, where was it? What's happened? So many great promises. But for him to hear the promise fulfilled, or to see the promise fulfilled, he needed to go to the wilderness. There are times when we feel overlooked. Maybe someone else has got the promotion that you were hoping for. Maybe someone else's life is turning out seemingly more successful than yours. And you think, well, I'm in a wilderness situation. Don't be afraid about that. Don't despise it because it's often in wildernesses that God speaks. He did the same to Moses. He did the same to all sorts of people. He did the same to Elijah. And Elijah's moaning and he sat under a tree, moaning about his lot. It was there that he turns up. And so if you're going through a tough time, God not only knows, but we shouldn't despise that. The application of this is, is just to look back over last year. If you were measuring last year by how high up the ladder of success you climbed, did I get promoted, did I get recognized, did I get noticed, it's probably not the best measure. Because actually we want God to notice us and see us. That's more important than anything else. Uh, major second point is, is this popularity and praise. Because often we can measure by this, and, and these days it's sort of measured in how many followers you have on social media, how many people like your posts, how many people are noticing what you do, how many people see what I'm up to and, and, and like it and engage with it. And this is not only feeds our sense of um, self-worth or self-loathing if nobody follows us and nobody likes what we're doing, but also this is incredibly important within our society at the moment. So the people that you're seeing on your television screens, the people that we're seeing on, on, on news, the people that we're, we're noticing in, in our newspapers perhaps, 
are those who have a big crowd watching them. Have a big crowd. And this is important because now it's monetized. People are making money out of whoever has the biggest crowd. And so this has become, and probably always has been, part of our DNA, part of our culture, part of our society to value popularity. I don't think anything particularly has changed, but the mechanism for noticing it has. And in this passage, we see this, that John starts to go and preach. And if we'd seen that map, he goes, it was on the last screen, I'll just put it back up again. He goes all around this area of the Jordan. So all the way up here, he's going all the way around preaching in this, in this region. And uh, it says, goes, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism for the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The next bit we see a little bit later on is he said to the crowds coming out to be baptized. So this guy is popular. John, he's a bit of an intriguing character, but he's popular. He's got crowds coming. And they're not going on paved roads. They're not going to Jerusalem where there's shops and, and, and hotels and places to stay and people to see and the Jerusalem theme park and whatever else there might be at the time. But there's all, he's not, they're not going there. They're going to the wilderness to see a guy who's preaching. And yet crowds are going. And a bit later on, not only are they going to see him, we read this, that the people are waiting expectantly, are wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. It's shorthand for the promised one, the anointed one, the one who's coming to set us free. So I just want to state the obvious and say that popularity is not a good measure of success. Because the crowds that come are the same crowds that go home again. People come and people go. And Jesus, when he had a crowd around him, wasn't excited or affected by that. He preached to the crowd, and he often preached a more challenging message the bigger the crowd got. If you notice that. If you read through the gospel stories as Jesus is preaching, he doesn't preach to attract a crowd. He gets a crowd because they're attracted to him, and he often then preaches quite a challenging message, and they all clear off. and Oh, I'm not sure about all that. Interesting mechanism. John preaches in the wilderness, and people come. They come and they see, but they don't only come, they praise, and they delight in what they're seeing. They, they big him up. Could this possibly be the Messiah? Popularity and praise are very nice when they're on your side. When they're not, it doesn't feel so good, does it? If you've ever found yourself in a place of being unpopular and criticized, you really, that really begins to hurt if you're not careful. It hurts because actually it just shows, it's not very nice, but sometimes it shows that we're measuring success by the wrong thing. Because those things have been taken away from us and suddenly everything we, we, that feels comfortable about ourselves, that feels that we have some markers down in our world, am I doing okay? Well, so-and-so thinks I'm doing okay and they think I'm doing okay and and they seem to like me, and they're interested in me, and yeah, I'm doing okay. And when some of that's taken away, it can be really unsettling. The end of John's story, from this little passage, not his ultimate end, but even in this little passage in verse 20, is that John ends up in prison. And in prison, there's no popularity, and there's no praise. In prison, you're isolated. Friends have to bring you food in, because there's no food supplied. You've got to be looked after by those who care for you. And there's nothing 
John ends this story with absolutely nothing. But I want to tell you, before I get to the end, John is no less successful in prison than he is with crowds stood around him proclaiming him to be the Messiah. He's no less successful. Why? Because he's doing exactly what God has wanted him to do all the way through. This is just a point to notice, I suppose, and, and, and be aware of for ourselves. Who, and ask ourselves this. Who are our crowds? And who are we looking for to give us praise? Who are our crowds? And who's well, or who's well done are we living for? So let me just unpack that very briefly. Who is it that when they notice us and they're around us, we feel better? They become our crowd. And there's a danger that we can live for popularity with that crowd. And secondly, whose praise or well done are we living for? I think John has this right, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I think it's so easy to get it wrong and to live for the well done of the crowd. Some are living for the well done of mum or dad. And that's kind of okay when you're little and you're at home, but some people are still doing it as adults. I've had conversations with, with folk, and you will have heard people say this as well, where they've achieved what the world would see as a measure of success. And there's a sadness that mum or dad wasn't alive to see them succeed. And the conversation goes something like, but they, I would have loved them to see how well I've done, how successful I've been. And sometimes people are trying to live out a, a desire to, to please people who are no longer actively in their lives because they've passed away. But we can still be living, out, living for someone's well done. And that's kind of okay-ish. We can't perhaps escape that, but it's useful being aware of it so that it doesn't control us. Useful just noting it and saying, maybe there's some of that going on in my life that I'm living for something, for somebody else. And the reason it's important, because any one human being isn't complete and isn't perfect. And I want to just suggest that we can live for the praise of one, who is Jesus. That we can live for God's well done, and that perhaps if, if I ever fall, and I do often into this trap of living to please others, and living, getting worried when people don't think I'm doing okay, and don't think I'm doing well, actually that's quite a dangerous place for me to be. That if praise or criticism determines my value, there's something that's unhinged slightly, something that needs replacing. If I'm living for the well done of my parents or my family or my teachers or my boss or myself, if I want to just feel that I'm doing okay, I think I'm in a dangerous place. You might be thinking, well, all that's a bit fluffy. It's results that matter. Come on. Results-focused, I like the bottom line, I like numbers, I like details. So, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, so he's got crowds to start with, got a lot of people, got numbers, not just popular, but he's got actual bums on seats, well, not seats, bums on floor, on grass or sand or rock, coming to watch him. And he's got tax collectors coming. And soldiers. So the people that are coming are just the same people that Jesus had coming to, to him. And they, they're just as engaged. So they're listening. They're not just physically present, but they're actively engaged and listening and taking part. Also, they're getting baptized. So if you want a numerical measure, he's got crowds coming to him and something's happening. They're, they're being transformed in some way in their lives. There's tangible 
results. If you want performance, John's got it. Until he's in prison. And then it stops. And then he's on his own. And I want to suggest to you again that his performance in prison is just as successful in God's eyes as his performance in the wilderness. Because he's still fulfilling the call of God on his life. I, I, just that this is a bit of a aside, I suppose, but I love the fact that, and I can show you that John isn't affected by the adulation of the crowd. Because I don't think I would be able to do this. This verse here, verse 7 says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. So he's got crowds. They're coming to be baptized. They've, they've already decided that they want to repent. They've already decided they want to engage with John's message. They're, they're there in the place. I would, I would say, welcome. Welcome. Come and get baptized. Thank you. You've come. Thank. John doesn't do that. He's not affected by trying to please anybody. These people are ready to repent. They're ready to get baptized. And he says, you brood of vipers. Who, who warned you? His message is hard. And it's hard because he's got a role to play that only he can play. It's to prepare the way for Jesus to come. That's his only job. His job actually isn't to baptize. His job actually isn't to, uh, to get nice sermons and have a nice response. His job isn't to be popular. His job isn't to be famous. His job only is to prepare the way for Jesus. That's all he has to do. And it's all he wants to do. So what are we measuring? What numbers are you measuring from last year to see if last year was a good year and to see how you're doing this year? Is it, is it your finances? Is it kind of, have I got enough coming in to pay the bills because I'm saving a bit, spending a bit less, earning a bit more? Does that feel like I'm doing better? Does it feel like I'm more in control? That's a good thing. It's a good thing to budget. It's a good thing to, to plan your finances, to trust God with it. But there are better measures of success. Am I, am I feeling fitter than last year? Did I keep up to date with my exercise plan? No, of course we didn't. But did I, do I feel better than I did last year? Am I a bit fitter? Will I do some more fitness regime this year? Maybe. But that's not always the best measure either. Am I faster, slower, cleverer, richer, kinder, nicer? What, what measure am I using? Well, all of them fall apart eventually. I want to suggest one important thing to us, which is this, that doing what God wants is enough. Doing what God wants is enough, and this is a great measure for us. As John stands preaching, he's got one job, which is to repair the way for Jesus to come. The key for John's life is simply doing what God wants. If he's done that, he's done well. Now, when we hear those sort of words, you might think, well, well, how do I know what God wants? Or we might think, what, what if what God wants for me is different from what God wants for somebody else? I want to encourage us and say, that's okay. There are missionaries who've gone out around the world preaching in a way dif- dissimilar to John, because it's a different method, but similarly in that they're representing Christ around the world 
And some went years ago with their belongings packed in a coffin because they knew they were going one way and they weren't coming back. And they would go to far-flung lands with everything they owned that they were taking with them, packed in a coffin because they were coming back in it. But their stuff was going out there with them. That's a pretty serious message, isn't it? Pretty serious uh, commitment to go on mission in that way, but also pretty serious commitment to the people you're going to, that you love them that much to go in that way. And some went and saw incredible results. And you can go to countries in the world today, hundreds of years later, and people will gratefully receive you as a British person or as a Western person to say, thank you. Somebody came and told us about Jesus. Thank you. These are the results. And you go to other places in the world where seemingly there was no result. Where the missionary went and they were killed within instantly, or they died on the journey on the boat. And you can think, what? How does that make sense? But but I set myself up to to to, to go and to serve God, and it was going to be brilliant. There were going to be thousands of people whose lives were changed, and it was all going to work. God, I'm giving everything to you. You're going to make me successful in your eyes, aren't you? I tell you, whether the missionary dies on the boat. Or preachers and thousands get saved. Both are equally successful in God's eyes. Both are. You think, well, how can that work? Sure, one is an awful tragedy where somebody got it wrong, and one is what God wanted in the first place. No. In the broad sense, yes, it's tragic. But in the broad sense, both heard God and said yes. That's it. We hear and we go. We do what God asks, and we leave the rest up to him. And whether you live in obscurity, whether I live in obscurity, and no one notices, but every day I'm living in response to God's prompt, or whether you live in the face of crowds and adoring people, chanting your name, may God, God forbid, because that does horrible things to you, doesn't it? But imagine you did. And you, you just live with adulation all day long, everywhere you went. Some of you have this. You have to put up with this every day. You, you go and just people just love you and they delight in you. And everywhere you walk, it's like a wedding and there's children throwing rose petals on the, on the road. And just people just, oh, please, come and give us your pearls of wisdom. And that can feel like su- success and the other can feel like failure. But I want to say, if we're following God, both can be success. In the church, we get this illustration in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul writes about different parts of the body and the eye can't say to, or the ear can't say to the hand, you shouldn't be part of this and I wish you weren't this and I wish you weren't that. And he's basically saying there's all sorts of different gifting in the church. Don't despise the one you've got and don't envy somebody else's. That's it, really. It's a simple message. And there's a principle in that is that you're not held to account for gifting that God never gave you. You're not going to be held to account for gifting that God never gave you. God will only ask us, what did you do with what I gave you? Did you say yes? He already knows. He's not going to ask us to condemn us, but there's a call to say, come on, say yes, trust me. Trust me with what I've given you. Trust me, live for me. Put me first. So how do we do this? How do we live 
little bit of my notes I'd forgotten. If you want to just me to prove to you that John did quite well in his life, this is Jesus' own comment about John. I tell you, amongst those born of women, there is no one greater than John. That's quite impressive, isn't it? Yeah, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's encouraging on two levels. One, it says that John did a great job in following God. Secondly, it says that all of us can too. Because we all enter in the same way as children. And we've come in. And he's saying simply that John was a forerunner to the kingdom. He didn't see it fulfilled. But we can. Which is why this sense of greater. So let's wrap this up. How do we live? Well, I think we would do well to stay fixed on what matters. You see, there's a challenge because everybody else around us in our day-to-day lives, most people around us in our day-to-day lives, are measuring popularity, praise, numbers. They're measuring, does it feel good? Does it make me happy? Is it working? They're measuring all sorts of things. But our call is not just to measure those things, but above them all, to listen out for the voice of one. And this must be hard if you're measured on performance. Many of you are. Performance managed. There's all sorts of criteria you've got to work to in your, in your workplaces. How do you live in that way, trying to get all the numbers right, when actually you know deep in your heart that none of that matters eternally? It doesn't, does it? You're not going to be held to account one day before God because your performance in the third quarter of 2015 wasn't up to scratch on your numbers. It's just not going to happen. If, you've got a, if you work in a service role and you, you didn't answer the call quick enough or you didn't provide care for enough people, God's not going to hold you to account for that. And eternally, you won't worry that you didn't make the sale. You really won't. So underneath it all, our calling is to live for an audience of one. Crowd goes home. This is. When... When nobody sees, when we're criticized or whatever else happens, when someone else's life looks better or shinier, we're still living for Jesus. Secondly, this is John's call. He knew this. When people said, are you the Messiah? He said, no, I baptize you with water, but one who's more powerful than I will come. The straps of his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He knew that his job was to stand and point to Jesus. All about Jesus. Thirdly, And finally, you might wonder, why, Stuart, when you're doing a series on seeing Jesus, have we talked about John the Baptist, not about Jesus? Because it's always about Jesus. John's life was always about Jesus. And and John prophetically shows us how we should live too. He shows us what our purpose should be and how we should live our lives. There was a song that we sang and I was just struck, I, there's no music around. We're, we're really cool these days and we use iPads for music, which is fabulous, but it doesn't mean I can't just pick up a music sheet because I can't operate the iPads. So um, there was a song and it had a great verse in it and maybe you remember it. There you go, that's, that's really helpful, isn't it? Um, second song in, maybe, Becky Ross. Um, talked about, something. second or third song in, talked about how we are preparing a way I think, for God coming, for Jesus coming back. It was that sort of thing. Sorry? Saved of the world. There we go. And, and it just struck me that, and I hadn't quite clicked 
And I could have done this seamlessly to pretend that I had noticed, and it was part of my sermon originally, but it wasn't. But that we are like John the Baptist now. He comes before Christ, and he's got to live with his eyes fixed on Jesus, or whoever's coming, who he doesn't know who it is yet, but he's coming. He's got to live that way because that's his job, to point to one who's coming. That's all he's got to do. And it struck me that it's our job too. Because Jesus has been, and we now stand after Christ, but he's coming again. And so our job is to live as those who are pointing to one who's coming again. And I don't really, and hear me on this, I've not always been in the same place, I don't want our church to become famous. I certainly don't. I've always been in this place. I certainly don't want to. But I've often thought, wouldn't it be great if lots of people knew about the church, if, if when you Googled churches, it was, was to the top? Kind of, yeah. Only if we're presenting Jesus. Because otherwise, presenting church won't save anybody, but Jesus will. Church won't change someone's life unless it's got Jesus right in the center, and then it might do. Because it's Jesus that we want people to see. And as we stand at this point, near the beginning of 2017, I pray that we can point to Jesus, that as we do so, as we live our lives listening to his voice and doing what he says, others might see him too. And like John the Baptist, whether we end up in prison, whether we end up still being praised, it won't matter because we know that our role is to point to one who's coming. May God bless us as we do so. Amen.